You've seen the best. You've seen the worst. Now here's the rest of both worlds. I'm Gayfesh, and I'm the Anarchy of Lust. And I'm Ari, and I'm sorry, I have to go now. Bye. (laughs) And today we will be discussing the Star Trek The Next Generation episodes, Loud as a Whisper, and The Schizoid Man. Uh, But before we do that... Seems like uh, trans rights are under attack in the United States. Again. Again. And Star Trek is about infinite diversity and infinite combinations. Mm -hmm. We celebrate our differences. We celebrate people who uh, differ from the norm, quote-unquote. And uh, as of Star Trek Discovery, Star Trek explicitly says trans rights and trans thriving. Mm -hmm. And we just want to reiterate that here. We do. We support all of our friends and family that are transgender in any way, shape or form or how they choose to identify. And we just wanted to make it very clear that that's where we stand because we 100 percent love our trans family. Absolutely. My own kids are I I fostered a couple trans kids that are still a part of our lives. And um, I mean, they're still my kids and my own child is um, non-binary as well. And in the school I work with, I'm a part of the GSA. And I've got to say, you know, this gender non-binary stuff is the future. These kids are going to change the world. Like it's it's I'm so proud of these kids and it's ridiculous how much people are trying to fight them, like just being themselves and being who they want to be and being strong in that. And I am ready to go to battle for them. Absolutely. Uh, Basically, all of my friends online these days are trans. So uh, Mm -hmm. it's personal. It is. And trans rights are human rights, just like gay rights are human rights, just like women's rights are human rights. All of us are people and we all have the right to thrive and be happy and be supported in who we are. We don't have to be who you want us to be. Trans rights are good for everybody because it breaks that gender binary that forces people into like situations where they treat women differently and stuff like that. This is just a situation where we have to stand up and say, this is a human rights violation and we stand with the people who are trying to fight it and we fight it ourselves. Amen. So today we're going to talk about Loud as a Whisper, which is the fifth episode of the second season of The Next Generation. It first aired on the 9th of January, 1989. And it was written by Jacqueline Zambrano and directed by Larry Shaw. So in this episode, um, the Enterprise is transporting a diplomatic negotiator to end a centuries-long conflict on another planet. Mm -hmm. And the man that they are bringing aboard is Riva, who is... Just hated by Worf, because everybody who comes on the Enterprise is hated by Worf. (laughs) Worf has, like, a particular reason for feeling un... I wouldn't say hatred, but he's very uneasy, because Riva is um, a man who uh, had negotiated several peace treaties between the Federation and the Klingons, and before Riva came around, there was no word in Klingon for peacemakers. So Riva is literally a Klingon word now. Interesting. But he's he's a deaf man and he uh, communicates through a uh, telepathic chorus of three people. Which I thought was really cool. <laughs> I thought it was really cool. There's the scholar. Then there was passion. I, I don't remember if they had exact names, but there was like the passion guy who said he was the anarchy of lust. Yes, he's libido. He is passion. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> A couple weeks ago at the Super Bowl, uh, Charlie Kirk had tweeted out how the NFL halftime show had just become uh, a sexual anarchy. And I replied to that tweet saying, stop making the NFL sound cool. (laughs) Sexual anarchy. The Super Bowl show is always like, yeah, strangely sexual. (laughs) (laughs) That's weird. The third chorus member was Harmony. Was that the lady? Yeah, that was the lady. Riva is immediately taken to Deanna. I assume probably because she's empathic and obviously his species has some level of empathic telepathic uh, connection. That connection uh, becomes very important when as soon as they beam down to the planet uh, to begin negotiations, one of the members of one of the delegations freaks out, doesn't want the peace and kills his chorus. His whole chorus with one shot. Yeah. I didn't even know that was possible. (laughs) Well, they were standing closely together, and it was cheaper for the special effects budget yeah, if it was just the one beam it that too. killed all three of them. It's, it's like, do you remember uh, in the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie when Green Goblin tosses that grenade that turns all of the board members into skeletons, but Mary Jane, who's like two feet away from them, is totally fine? It works yes. like that. Yes, I do remember that. <laughs> 
I, that actually happened in an episode of Peacemaker I was watching last night. They blew something up, but all these like delicate pipes and stuff right by the explosion were all together. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> but yes, that's what happened. Oh, actually, uh, going back to uh, Worf being uneasy mm-hmm. about the whole situation, Deanna is the one who calls it out. Deanna senses that he feels unease and like starts needling him about it in front of everyone. And I'm just yeah. like, I, um, I'm sorry, I know you're an empath, but like, I, I feel like you should get consent before telling everyone, you know, just what, what another crew member is feeling. Like, the number one rule of counseling, because I work in a counseling center, is confidentiality. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I, and, and, you know, but here's my question. Why would Worf himself, as a Starfleet officer, hate the word peacemaker or hate that the Klingons have the word for peacemaker now? Or peacekeeper or whatever? I don't know. I, he's probably... He's probably just trying to deal with the the disparate parts of his nature because he is a Klingon, but he was raised by humans. And so, you know, it's just that that internal conflict. Okay, so it was just supposed to be more of that, like, I'm a Klingon, even though I'm in Starfleet kind of thing that Worf's got going on lately, which I think is Mm -hmm. way more interesting to his character. You know, I love seeing that conflict. I just was a little like I didn't understand, like, because like, I, I mean, I assume that Worf believes in the Starfleet, like motto i don't know uh, this yeah. is the, the directive you know otherwise he wouldn't be a starfleet officer right uh-huh. so i guess that's where my confusion came in yeah he he usually is um one of the more uh hawkish members of the crew he's the the first to suggest firing phasers and whatnot mm-hmm. so he, he is a little, he's more aggressive than the other crew members but uh he's still he's still starfleet yeah that's what i figured Okay, so did we wait? Did we finish the plot? No, <laughs> so we they, didn't. They, I, had, okay. I, I went back because I remembered the uh, uh, Deanna calling Worf out. Anyway, so okay. yeah, <laughs> the chorus is dead, and Reva is deaf. Um, and so they're sitting there trying to figure out a way to communicate with him. And my immediate thought is, why does the universal translator only work for voice? That's a good point because. Um, obviously Data goes and learns Reva's sign language pretty right. quickly, but like, you know, it's the future. They've got holo- uh, holographic projectors. Uh, Picard was like looking at a hologram on his desk at the beginning of the episode. They could have made a holograph of, of a, per- a translator. Yeah. 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 No, I'm just saying, uh, the universal translator could easily just project hand symbols mm-hmm. to translate somebody's uh, words into sign language. So. How does the universal translator work in Star Trek? I'm realizing now that I'm thinking of the Babelfish in my head or the TARDIS in my head. How does it work on Star Trek? Uh, pretty much like that, yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, it's, okay. Um, there, there are some times where like, it uh, doesn't work as well. And actually on Enterprise, the universal translator is a lot more rudimentary and so their communications officer is actually a polyglot she like knows she's like fluent in 40 languages and she's really good at picking them up quickly and i assume okay. uh she probably did a lot of work in improving the uh, uh, universal translator but i think it just is able to recognize speech patterns at, at a very sophisticated degree but at that point where like you're saying that the computer is so far advanced there's no reason it wouldn't be able to read hand motions as as yeah, exactly. sign language and interpret it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean we've got uh, um machines can recognize, you know, motion input now, so like in yeah. the future it should, yeah. No, it, it seems like um an oversight on the part of the writers just in general that they wouldn't consider that in the future we would still have deaf people who would e- even like the deaf community today there are there are some who are uh, opposed to cochlear implants because mm-hmm. they don't see being deaf as a disability yeah uh the, one one of the the um one of the big things that i've heard from uh, deaf people is that uh we can do everything you can except here yep for a lot of deaf people they see the cochlear implant as kind of a, a dissolution of their community and i mean there there's so many important parts of culture that come from deaf communities i mean like Oh, hey, I was just talking about NFL. The huddle literally came from a deaf college. Oh, did it? I didn't know that. Yeah, they huddled so that the other team couldn't see their signs. Oh, interesting. So I have to imagine in the future there's still deaf people and sign language still exists. 
it should have been in the Universal Translator. I wondered if that's what they were doing with the conversation with Jordy about replacing his eyes. I was wondering mm-hmm. if that was a metaphor for the cochlear implant because I was roommates with a deaf person for about two years. And um, so I learned a lot about this stuff. Like I learned that he was forced to learn to speak when he was younger instead of like us learning sign language or whatnot. It was because he's my age. So mm-hmm. in his 40s, you know, so back in the 80s he went to an all deaf school where they tried to force him to learn to speak and stuff like that and that's now kind of like gone out of fashion we don't force deaf kids to learn to speak for our comfort or whatever and I so when i teach asl like i do too it's ASL. really big in the high school i work in it's one of, it's the second biggest language after spanish so it is that's out there and people are learning know. it it is yeah um so in this, in, in, so I thought maybe that Jordy thing was, um, like when, uh, Pulaski is offering to like basically regrow his eyes with various different tools or whatever. Uh-huh. And I wondered if that was supposed to be a metaphor for the cochlear because if, because it would have been new in the 80s, right? Because I think I remember first, this is 89, so I remember first hearing about them in the mid 90s. Do you remember when they I got- don't remember. Um, the, I, I, the first time I was really like learning about them, I think was like uh, in the like the mid 2000s there was that youtube video of the woman who who heard for the first time and started crying and i remember that hit me pretty deep and was like that's amazing that we've got that and you know obviously it's an amazing technology and any deaf person who who wants it should absolutely get it nobody should discourage them Um, right the specifically with the Jordy thing, um, I think this episode is actually uh trying to set up a, a an aborted story arc where they were going to introduce a love interest for Jordy Okay. And through through that arc, like he was going to uh, decide that he wants to go for the uh, operation because he wants to be able to see her with his own eyes. OK, um, that get, that doesn't happen because uh, the woman that they cast uh, to be the potential love interest uh, ended up being too goofy of a character for them to see. Like, there's no way Jordy would do this for her. So OK, OK, that makes sense. Um, um we'll, we'll get to her in a, a, a probably about 10 episodes or so but oh good it's soon okay <laughs> so after they learn the sign language uh data sits down and learns the sign language he stands behind the person he's talking to and then signs what the people are saying even though we've already established that reva or is it it's reva right that it's he reva. can that he can read lips and 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 yet uh, data stands behind anybody he's talking to once he learns language language and does the sign language and says mm-hmm. the words out loud even though we know he can speak he can read lips so i thought that was funny i, I actually think that's important because uh, lip reading isn't is imperfect um uh, particularly like in stressful situations you're gonna miss a lot there's a lot of words that look similar and yeah. i think having having a, a sign language translator disambiguates that i think I think that was it good. It does yeah. make your intention clear. Yeah. What I thought was weird, though, is that, as you said, he was standing behind. Like, uh, he, you know, there's like he's behind um, Deanna and, and Picard. And I'm like, you're kind of being like obscured a little bit by their shoulders. Like, mm-hmm. you should be standing up front the, up, up front out in the open so that he can yeah. clearly see your hand motions yeah like um the other school that i used to work at whenever we had to do zoom meetings it's weird because you know how in zoom meetings they usually want you to have your camera on and everybody can see you but because at the other school we have a deaf teacher everybody turns their cameras off so that the person who's talking at the time always comes to the front for the person for the for the person who's doing the interpretation Mm-hmm. And it's like when those kinds of things that are so easy to do that I that I love seeing people like actually like treat deaf people like they're people because they are right. Like it's this whole thing. I mean, growing up, not growing up, knowing Scott for two years and hearing how he grew up and having to go to that school and how it was all about we need to make other hearing people comfortable. I really loved seeing in this episode how the 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 deaf character was so much of the focus. Does that make sense? Yeah. And um, the actor who plays Reva, Howie Sego, he was the one who actually pitched this episode to the producers. He wanted a, uh, a disability positive episode. And um, yeah. th- that's why in the episode, uh, he, when he sees Jordy's visor, he asks about it and he mm-hmm. says that the visor works for Jordy like his chorus works for him. 
and which I thought was such a cool like yeah I thought that was a cool like tie they explicitly had Jordy say that he doesn't resent the visor or his or him being blind because they're a part of him they're who he is and he wouldn't be who he is without them so there's no reason to resent them um that was a very uh, uh disability affirming it feels uh, like for 1989 that it was a big mm-hmm. deal, right? Like, because yeah. I don't remember seeing this kind of stuff when I was younger. I didn't watch Next Generation, so. <laughs> I remember some of that stuff, like, starting. Like, I think there was, like, a Ghostbusters show in which one of the characters was in a wheelchair. Okay. And I remember uh, whenever you would have, like, those, like, ensemble pieces where they would always have, you know, the the black kid and the Asian kid and the group of kids. And then there would be the kid in the wheelchair. They'd always do that. Right. Yeah, um, that's right. I do remember that from the 80s. 80s, early 90s. 90s. Yeah. More of my more of my recollection. But it seems like that was starting to become a thing there where uh, we were starting to see disabled people more as people and trying to be more inclusive with that. Well, as somebody who was able-bodied growing up and I'm disabled now because I have a chronic illness, um, Mm -hmm. I didn't, so I've always had the chronic illness. It just wasn't, you know, it didn't flare really bad until I got to be about 35. And so I've had to learn to be disabled in a world of able-bodied people in a world where I didn't realize how ableist I was on a regular basis before. Mm -hmm. Um, And if I hadn't had my friend Danielle, who was like the strongest person I've ever known, show me how to like be disabled with grace. I have told her many times that I, once I got sick, I was so glad that I had her because I got to see somebody who had had to do with, deal with it her whole, I'm going to cry because she passed away i'm sorry Uh (laughs) um but um i got to watch her just be so gracious and so loving and so caring about the way she was about her disability it really helped me be able to be more gracious with people um and if i hadn't had that i don't know how i would have reacted and so seeing this kind of media makes me happy you know well and when you talk about uh, disability with grace i mean she was miss wheelchair washington i know she was literally a pageant winner for uh (laughs) yeah i know she was such a lovely person and she you know while she got frustrated about her illness and stuff she didn't let it define who she was you know Mm -hmm. and so and we love her we've talked about her before because she was friends with will uh wheaton (laughs) and um and uh his wife i always forget her name i feel so bad is it ann yeah, it sounds familiar. Okay. Yeah, Anne sounds okay. right. Okay. And so, like, we've talked about her before, but I love her so much. And so I I was thinking about her this whole episode and how she, how I would have loved to have been able to talk to her about this episode. And speaking of Will Wheaton, um, while this episode was being filmed, um, they were shooting Star Trek V, uh, basically at the same lot because they would, they were using a lot of TNG sets. They were redressing them for the movie. Mm-hmm. And uh will wheaton having grown up watching star trek was really excited to go and meet uh will shatner when he got told okay yeah bill is on at lot five or whatnot today if you want to go and go say hi he like ran over um you know introduced himself and was very excited to meet him and shatner was a complete ass to him uh he was just like why is that not surprising he's like oh he's like oh you're the kid on the new show huh yeah um i'd never let a kid on my ship and that was basically it that was basically all he said to him and then just ignored him and will was crushed because bill shatner is like a hero of his and uh word got to gene roddenberry and gene called will to his office and he's just like well shatner's an asshole um (laughs) i'm glad that's what he said (laughs) don't don't take it to heart he's an asshole we're gonna talk to him um it's not you and and uh will will's told this story many times i've heard him tell it and um what what really stuck to him is how the rest of the tng cast particularly frakes and and burton um you know took to him and and were like you know, basically, and particularly because uh, Will Wheaton lived in an ab- abusive home, um, mm. uh, and so like the TNG cast uh, uh, basically became his family during that time, and yeah. So Frakes, he very much feels like he's space dad to him, 
and i think he's called him space dad (laughs) (laughs) yeah i call carrie carrie space mom a lot of people do though (laughs) yeah i'm not the one that made that up but i mean carrie fisher we call her space mom so i think it's i think it's fitting that frank's be space Mm -hmm. dad i think that's perfect (laughs) back to the episode um, of course yes we said we sidetracked a little bit those are important stories though i mean i don't understand why shatner feels the need to be such a dick i I couldn't think of a better word i was trying (laughs) i don't know uh i I feel like this would be psychoanalyzing to say um yeah back to the episode so uh reva is uh, at first he's just he's distraught because you know uh his chorus is dead and they were his friends um and he just wants to to give up and go home but uh, they're like look we came all this way uh and these people are willing to come to the table for talks um, and so uh, Deanna decides, well, if Reva's not going to do it, uh, I'm going to do it. And Reva and Deanna have had a, a rapport this whole time. There was a, they had like a, a scene uh, where they had a dinner together and he actually dismissed his um, uh, libido translator and <laughs> <laughs> libido translator <laughs> just so that they could have one on one time. And before he did that, I was just thinking, um, Okay, so that guy translates his libido for him. Is he gonna f- Deanna for him too? I had that thought too. I was wondering, <laughs> and but Deanna did not want to sleep with that guy. She made it very clear that she did, was like, uh, so like if we get down to business, is that guy gonna be here? You know, <laughs> she was not down for the threesome. That's for no. sure. <laughs> She's she's like, look, I'm going to do this, but I've never done it before. And that and he's like, well, you, you're not ready. But then he starts thinking about it. And uh, she actually she talks about uh, their their meeting and how uh, uh, he used other ways to communicate with her and, and how he can turn his um, disadvantage into an advantage, which mm-hmm. gives him the idea that uh, he's actually going to stay on the planet. Uh, for several months and teach the two sides sign language because uh, while they are learning to communicate with him they will learn better to communicate with each other which actually i think is a really cool idea i thought it was a really cool ending yeah Mm -hmm. i agree i thought so too i know i I liked that ending a lot i was like oh that's actually really sweet it's sweet and it's it's poignant because it's like you know in order to bridge the gap between two societies like learning to communicate with each other from the ground up is just a very emotionally intelligent way to handle it too there's one moment uh right after the chorus has died and and reva is um kind of panicking uh and unable to communicate with anyone he's signing but nobody can read it and right. picard grabs him by the head and yells listen to me and i'm like what are you doing <laughs> oh i didn't catch it i didn't catch it but that's so terrible yeah <laughs> listen now, to me <laughs> obviously he can read his lips and he's saying listen we are you are not alone we're here we're going to help you and that yeah. was able to calm him down a little bit i just thought the optics of grabbing a deaf man by the ears and yelling listen to me was like so uh also uh, going to pulaski because pulaski had talked to jordy about a potential uh different way of you know replacing his visor with ocular implants or possibly just growing him new eyes in the replicator uh, but she had also uh, examined uh, Riva and, because after the chorus died, they were like, well, is there a, a medical uh, solution here? Can we help him to hear? And I'm just like, even if you were able to fix the, the uh, part of his brain that because uh, he's not, you know, because uh, his deafness is genetic and it's not anything to do with his ears. His brain cannot process. Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, audio signals. Even if they were able to do brain surgery and repair that, that wouldn't help because he's been deaf his whole life. And if you did that, he would just be overwhelmed with new sensory data that he would have no way. How and to then you have to learn to process it and learn a language and everything. Yeah, yeah it's not going to help into the situation at all. But that's a very able bodied way to look at it. Can we bring him to uh-huh. our level to make yeah, this exactly. even or whatever? Yeah. Oh, I really, really loved his sweater. 
or coat or I call everything a sweater, but, but do you, did you pay attention to it? It had like these big, uh, these cuffs like off of his sleeves that like made like ruffles. And I, I, I was like, man, if I ever wanted to cosplay, you know, I'm always constantly like making fun of the outfits, but I loved this sweater. I thought it was so cool looking. Mm-hmm. And then one of his guys, not, not the libido one, but the other one, um, also had, yeah, the scholar, he had bits of that same, like, um, ruffles on his sleeves and I wondered I thought there might have been a lot of thought put into the costume designing on this particular episode but there was no talk about it so I didn't get whether it was I didn't get to confirm whether or not there was anything that mattered about their outfits but I thought there seemed to be some thought behind it I just saw oh that's a bunch of uh, white clothing It is, (laughs) yeah Um, and then Reva had the big gray like coat thing that's Mm -hmm. what I'm talking about I really liked that there was one thing in there that I thought was weird, and it was when they um, made allusions to the uh, the Hanover uh, royal family with uh, hemophilia and said that uh, Reva's uh, genetic line is all deaf. Yeah. And, but comparing it to a royal family, which is the product of inbreeding, I'm like, are we really going to be justifying royal inbreeding in this episode about disability rights? Is that what it is? Oh, yeah, that is. <laughs> I had not really thought about it because I thought of it as kind of like a throwaway line. But yeah, that is weird. Yeah. Like, because that's different than an actual like evolutionary disability or genetic or whatever. Because, like, with mine, the thing that I have, it's a genetic thing, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's at the core of my DNA for the collagen in my body. And there's no changing that unless they come to the place, you know, in the Star Trek times where they can, you know, change the core DNA like structure of collagen inside of my body but that's not because of inbreeding there's no. there's other things that are caused by inbreeding <laughs> yeah know? and especially like in the deaf community i mean there are people who are genetically deaf who have genetically deaf offspring but that's not inbreeding that's just one of their traits right um, right and i think they would have done better to make an allusion to that rather than uh, mm-hmm. uh specifically an instance where inbreeding was causing recessive traits to uh compound i agree yeah I was really completely shocked when the course got killed. As a side note, I wasn't expecting it. I when we went down, I was like, "Oh, it's an original series set. Someone's going to die." <laughs> like my notes say TOS set people are going to die. And I didn't really think about who it would be. Like and I was writing something down. Oh, I was writing, "Why do I want to hate Reva?" Like this is actually a question we should talk about. But I was mm-hmm. writing, "Why do I want to?" And then it says, "What in the f is people?" You know? <laughs> like I was not expecting it i just all of a sudden that one guy shot him and i was like oh my god they're dead you know it was like really uh it was shocking and i but i kind of liked it they should have listened to wharf um there is (laughs) a youtube compilation of all of the times wharf has made suggestions and Mm -hmm. has been shot down and they're usually security concerns and he's often vindicated in his suggestion but they always <laughs> shoot him down and in this episode he's like let's take a security team down with and Reva is like no 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 less people the better which he Reva does admit that it was his arrogance that he thought he could just go down there with a minimal compliment and just uh, rely on his reputation to to resolve the matter and obviously that didn't work out and his friends right. paid the price yeah I mean, and we keep saying friends, but like they've been with him his whole life, right? Yeah. So almost more like family, mm-hmm. you know, like it would be so hard to lose three people that had been by your side your whole life. And he did such a good job of expressing that frustration. And I think his response to be like, well, screw this. I'm not going to help this negotiation because I have to go deal with my own stuff was completely human and completely oh, yeah. <laughs> normal response. No, but, nobody would blame him for giving up. But why did I... Why did I feel like the show was trying to make me dislike Reva? Like, there was actually nothing wrong with him, but there was this feeling, like this tone. There wasn't anything specific, but it was like I was always constantly on edge around him. Maybe I was just waiting for him to be the monster of the week or whatever, and that's why. I think there was, um, and I don't know how much of this was intentional, but I think there was like an aloof detachedness to him, and some part of that is just other people are speaking in his voice so it feels like you're a little distant from him but also he is arrogant um and pay the price for his arrogance in the episode so i think that was a, a a deliberate character choice 
Do we ever see Rivas again? Riva again? No. No, it's it's very rare that we have recurring characters in Star Trek, particularly mm. from the early seasons. I kinda liked him. I mean, once I got to the end of the episode and everything, I, I liked him and I kinda uh-huh. kinda wondered if him and Deanna and ever ended up hooking up or not. But I think everything was so ac- action packed, I don't think they ever got a chance. No. I think they probably would have if he hadn't been called to the bridge once they arrived at the planet. Oh, yeah. Um, Because they were in the middle of dinner and then uh, Picard calls and she's like, oh, you're needed on the bridge. But I I, I had a I have a feeling if uh, if duty hadn't called, uh, they would have uh, done their duty another way. (laughs) (laughs) And on that, I guess it's time to talk about the next episode. (laughs) Let's move on. Uh, So the second episode we're going to talk about today is called... (laughs) The schizoid man. I don't think we say that anymore, right? Like my no. mom used to say that word, but I don't. I don't. I. I don't think I say that word. I don't think I've ever said that word. It's outdated. Um, yes. Okay. <laughs> um, it's the sixth episode of the second season. It aired on the twenty third of January, nineteen eighty nine. The teleplay was by Tracy Torme, and the story was by Richard Manning and Hans Hans Beamler, and it was directed by Les Landau. So those are all uh, people we've seen before. So uh-huh. this is like a core people episode yeah <laughs> and um this show starts with uh the perfect example of why not everyone can make a show better by growing the beard <laughs> um data has Jordy and troy come to his quarters because he wants to show off his brand new beard that he's grown and uh, I, my notes say data has a new image because that's what they said and then i and then in all capitals it says i was not prepared <laughs> It is. I had to pause the TV, as you know, because I sent you a picture of my TV and I was like, oh, my God, I can't breathe. It's hideous. Um, It's so bad. It's uh, I mean, it's the same. It's the same color as his hair for the most part. But like, I I guess I just didn't really notice how much that clashes with his skin tone. Because when it's in his hair, it's just back. You could kind of treat it like a hat, you know, but on his face, it's like, oh, no, you're. Your skin is way too pale for a beard that dark. Oh, I know. He looked exactly like my ex-boyfriend, too. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I I, just was like, I love these. This episode all in general, though, had a lot of comedy in it that was pretty good. But that that um, that beard, man, like I and it was clearly them poking fun at the fact that Riker suddenly had a beard. Right. Like uh-huh. they had they probably had those first five written and then Riker came with the beard and they decided to keep it. And they were like, oh, we got to throw something into cold open about Riker's beard. <laughs> Well, obviously, Data was inspired by Riker to grow the beard. So obviously, yes. And then, and then, of course, um, it, it was my joke at the beginning of the episode. But like, Deanna's, I'm sorry, I gotta go now. Bye. <laughs> like, and she just leaves as fast as she can out of the room. Uh, it was my favorite. I, I don't know. I think it is my favorite open. The other one I loved was the one with um, the sex joke and Jordy and Deanna staring googly eyes at Bill. Right. <laughs> but I think this one takes I think this one takes the cake. There's um, I don't remember what season it is, but I think my favorite cold open of any Star Trek, uh, the next generation episode is it just starts with uh, ship's counselor log, stardate, whatever. My mother is aboard. And that's it. <laughs> it's just like, yes, thank you. That is the perfect way to start this episode. Uh, so I take it that, that uh, Luxana is back. <laughs> yeah, she she is a recurring character. So, oh, oh, oh. Okay, so I, we got to tell the plot of this one, but before we do, the character, the woman, her name, uh, Brennan, Briannon, Briannon. Uh-huh. Uh, she said, "Thank God." Uh-huh. And I was like, what God are you thanking? <laughs> like, I've never, I don't think I've ever heard that term in Star Trek before. It like threw me off really bad. I was like, what? You it's know? just a colloquialism. I mean, I say thank God and I'm an atheist. So, you oh, know, yeah, just- I say it, too. I just had not heard it in Star Trek yet. You know, I was like, oh, weird. Do you believe in a God alien lady? Like, are you human? Like, what are I'm you? I'm pretty sure you she know? was human. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> So the uh, Enterprise receives a uh, distress call from a planet where a uh, a scientist dude is living. And they're like, oh, well, he's like one of the Federation's brightest minds. We better go there right away and make sure he's OK. But the, the distress call did not come from him. It came from his assistant. It came from his pretty assistant. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and so they get there. Um, 
and uh, oh, as they're arriving, uh, there's like a distress call from another ship, and so they're like, oh, well, there's like thousands of people on that ship. We got to go there instead. So they just beam down like a an away team and then head off immediately. And because like Pulaski's like, well, I better, I'm, I'm more needed over there. So they send down um, a Vulcan doctor instead that we've never seen before. Yeah. Um, uh, who's played by Susie Plaxon, uh, who plays th- this is not her most memorable role because she's just kind of playing a stoic Vulcan, um, yeah. which really doesn't capitalize on her talents as an actor. Um, she's going to be playing a uh, a Klingon in a couple episodes here who you're going to love. Yay. And on Star Trek Voyager, she played female Q. Female Q. OK, I didn't know there was a female Q. Yeah, I don't know if you remember that episode, but uh, she's very sassy and and uh, it kind of sounds familiar. But yeah, I mean, I watched Voyager in 1998 or whatever, and I was barely paying attention. If you did you ever watch How I Met Your Mother? Yeah. She played Marshall's mom. Oh, 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 she's also an American Horror Story. Oh, OK. No, not Marshall's mom. I'm thinking no. of Barney's mom. I'm oh. I'm confusing her with Barney's mom. Oh, Barney's okay. mom is an American Horror Story. Um, Marshall's mom, I can see her in my head now. OK, yes, yes. OK, I'm with you. Oh, that's interesting. So, yeah, she's somebody that continued to keep working after mm-hmm. Next Generation, obviously. Yeah. Okay. So they get down there and they're beamed into his house, I think, right? Yeah. Like they just get straight down into Mr. Jerkface's house. I don't remember his name. Ira Graves. Do, did you recognize the actor for Ira Graves? He seemed familiar and I didn't know why. So his name is Morgan Shepard. Um, you absolutely have seen him in things. Um, you probably know him better by his son, Mark Shepard. Oh, oh. Oh, from Battlestar Galactica, Battlestar Galactica, Doctor Supernatural. Actually, in the the episode of Doctor Who that he was in, Morgan Shepard played the older version of him. The one that brings the the stuff to them at the lake, right? That's what you're Mm -hmm. talking about. That's him, right? That was the same actor. Oh, my gosh. Yes. It's the one where the astronaut kills the doctor. Yep. And then um, Mark Shepard plays nixon's fbi guy yeah oh my gosh that's so cool that's so cool i love i'm a huge supernatural person and yeah obviously i love doctor who because we talk about it all the time (laughs) Uh, like and even here like in this episode this is like obviously uh, i think he morgan shepherd died like a couple years ago but like even in this episode 30 years ago he looks like he's on death's door and some of that might have been makeup but also that dude just has looked old forever and i think it's the teeth he's always had Mm -hmm. you know weird teeth i think he's missing his like incisors or something yeah i thought like he he looked like an old man who had taken his dentures out at one Mm -hmm. point and i that's what it looked like you know it's funny my friend uh ken you know ken he uh works at a hotel and one time like five six seven years ago he messaged he texted me and he He's like, hey, do you know what a Crowley is? And I was like, from Supernatural. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, some guy named Mark Shepard is here in the hotel and people keep asking for autographs. <laughs> and I was wondering if you know who he is. And I was like, yes. <laughs> I was like, do you remember the the lawyer from Battlestar Galactica? Because that was the one he had watched that I knew that he had known him from. Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, he's the lawyer from Battlestar Galactica. Yeah. So anyway, I'm on a large Mark Shepard tangent, but that's so I, cool. I, I, yeah. I, I was going to bring it up because I was like, oh, well, we, we both love Mark Shepard. And he's I mean, yeah. he's, he's, the, he's the voice of BBC America, right? Like he does I, I think all so. the, the, the interstitials between episodes and stuff. It's been a long time since I've had cable, but yes, yeah. I think so. <laughs> um. And actually, Morgan Shepard has done other things in Star Trek. Actually, I think he was in Star Trek 2009. He played the racist member of the Vulcan Science Academy who told, uh, mentioned Spock's disadvantage of being half human. Is 2009 the original one? Like yeah, just the one the, that's called Star Trek? Yeah, it's just called Star Trek J.J. Abrams. Okay. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. I'm trying to place that part of the movie. I've seen it several times, but what really that was stands his last out is Star the Trek role. Yeah, is it okay? Is he still alive, or did he? No, he he's really a old. Years ago, I think. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So they get down. He and he's a giant sexist <laughs> because women that's... aren't people; they're women. Right. I think I said I texted you that in all caps. <laughs> yeah, uh, you told me that you hate. Uh, you found somebody that you hate more than Sonny from the Neutral Zone. 
<laughs> I hate him more than Sonny, but he and Sonny can like go, you know, fly off into a star together. <laughs> they can go. They can go uh, hunt for some low mileage pit woofies together. Together. Um, <laughs> low mileage pit woofies i'm still laughing about that by the way like i looked that up um and uh pit woofie is um a groupie and low mileage means uh young so basically (laughs) looking for like an 18 year old groupie no that's so awful (laughs) yeah so then they get down there yeah. <laughs> and then we, we keep getting distracted by it. <laughs> but I'm so excited about the Mark Shepard thing still. Uh-huh. Um, and so they get down there and it turns out he's a big jerk and she called because he doesn't like doctors. But it turns out he's got a terminal illness. As much as the Mandalorian doesn't like droids because they say it over and over again. Um, but uh, uh, Graves is able to instantly recognize that Data was built by uh, uh, Noonien Soong. Um, of course, we we don't know this at the time, but later you find out that uh, Noonien Soong literally has the same face as Data. He patterned Data in lore after his, after himself. But, so that's oh, how he was able to determine Oh, that's how he knew. Because he yeah. said something like, soon, of course. And I assume yeah. just because he was such an uh, advanced android is what he meant. Well, but also, uh, he kind of basically takes credit for everything Soong's ever done. He's just like, I taught him everything he knows. Yeah. So I, that kind of makes me your grandfather. And Data starts calling him grandpa, and it's a really weird thing. <laughs> it's oh, really and, weird. <laughs> and, um, this is the second time we've had a Wizard of Oz reference oh my specifically God, about Data, because uh, Ira Graves is whistling if I only had a heart. And... Uh, Data doesn't know it, and I'm just like, how does Data not know Wizard of Oz, but Armis does? And I was today years old when I learned it was called If I Only Had a Heart, because I would have put money on the fact that I thought that song was called If I Only Had a Brain. They're, they're both songs. They use the same melody. Oh, they're two different songs? Yeah, they both, both, oh, uh, yeah, they both have guess... their own song, and they just use the same melody. I, I had never tracked that. You know what? I have not actually sat down and watched The Wizard of Oz since it used to play over two nights when I was like five years old. <laughs> I watched it like... Uh, five years ago with my ex, and we were just like, "Well, that didn't hold up." It's a yeah. That's one of the reasons I haven't gone back to watch it. <laughs> but yes, yes, here we are once again with another Tin Man reference to Data. And at this time, I was a little bit more forgiving about it because it fit a little bit better than Armus's well, human who tin was man. <laughs> singing it. Um, so you know, and obviously, it's a you know a pop culture reference for humanity because right humans made it, but um. We find out that uh, uh, Graves has developed a method to transfer his mind to a machine. And as soon as he said that, I and said, as soon oh. As he said that, oh. And then he's, <laughs> then, um, you know, he starts talking to Data about mortality, and Data mentions how he has an off switch. And if. And it's then we shot cut off, to black. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, he mentions the off switch in a way to try and relate to, to Ira because he's like, well, if, if I'm turned off, I'm effectively dead, you know, unless I'm turned right. back on. I. I I cease to exist. And as soon as Ira hears that he's got an off switch and he's got this whole contraption where he can transfer his mind to a machine, he's just like, now where would Soong put that off switch, I wonder? <laughs> and then the very next scene, Data walks into the next room with everyone. He's like, Ira Graves is dead. He passed away in my arms. and then no one like the entire crew doesn't figure it out for like the whole episode they they start suspecting pretty quickly because um uh data is like we will honor his burial wishes won't we and then like he gives like this really like a a a disgustingly indulgent uh (laughs) what was the line i don't think i wrote it down but is to to know know him him is is to love him is to know him (laughs) is to know him (laughs) uh those who knew him loved him and those who did not know him loved him from a distance and then then picard's like shut the up data that's it you're done (laughs) (laughs) like that was you know what this was some of my favorite brent spiner acting though i loved it i was was so good at it yeah i also (laughs) loved that touch where like wesley was like the only one taken by the speech he's like data that was incredible to know him is to love him is to know him and i'm just like oh kid you're 15 (laughs) i know okay so then they shoot him into space and we do, do we talk about that now or do we want to finish the plot because i have strong sure, feelings about, about shooting people into space so one of my biggest fears and this is going to sound so stupid one of okay. my biggest fears is being 
lost in the vacuum of space. I have watched too many space movies where people just go flying off into forever. And oh, you're like, a horrifying uh, movie. You've uh-huh. seen gravity, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I have had this fear for a long time of the vast openness of space because of space movies where people go flying off. Like, um, yeah, you want to go to space. I do. I still want to go to space anyway. Uh, <laughs> but like Frank Poole, when it's like, OK, goodbye, dead guy. And they just fling him off into the air in 2001. Oh, that's right. We, we still haven't watched that. Um, <laughs> like, I'm like, oh, God, goodbye. And then people are like, hey, if you read the books, he comes back 3000 years later after floating in space for 3000 years. And I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, why? That sounds horrifying. So I'm really afraid of this. And so the idea of taking dead people and jettisoning them, jettisoning them off into space is horrifying to me, like that being your final resting place. Plus, how many dead bodies are floating around in space? Like, what if you're like warping somewhere and you run into someone's coffin? So um, if we're going to just talk about burial practices here, I've often found that the idea of like embalming bodies so that they don't decay <sighs> is actually <sighs> on like kind of an ethical level. I I disagree with it because there's um it's so the, the burial the burial practices of uh, it's either Nepal or Tibet. I think it's Nepal, um, but it's it you know up in the Himalayas where there's a layer of permafrost and you cannot bury six feet deep. You just won't get through. Um, All right. They have a practice called the sky burial where they will take the corpse to an open field, butcher it. And leave it for the vultures. And I, I've seen a video of it being done, and you know it's gruesome because you know they're butchering a corpse, and then the vultures pick it clean. But right. As gruesome as that is, I actually think it's a very beautiful way to return to the earth. It's you're you're not like you know a, a body's a body. I don't really hold any strong sentimental value on a corpse. I'm kind of cling on in that way. Mm-hmm. But it's material that if we embalm it and put it in a coffin to make sure that nothing ever happens to it we're just removing that material from the earth we're removing it from the ecosystem um so like i like the ideas of people like um my uh next door neighbor died a couple years ago from leukemia and he's a tree now Um, i I was just gonna bring up the tree thing yeah um i used to be very against cremation um i was raised christian and i wouldn't be able to be raised when jesus comes back if i was cremated and this used to scare the crap out of me because when you're very young a lot of religious stuff is very scary and especially when you don't have a lot of context to put it into so i have i like uh the movie gattaca when the guy gets Mm -hmm. into the furnace i had Mm -hmm. nightmares for for weeks like it's almost it's almost as bad as the space nightmares i have sometimes um but like the idea of cremating myself like just sound i'd never wanted to be cremated and then i became buddhist and i started trying to rectify why it was okay for them like why they were why they wanted because traditionally buddhists are cremated right and yeah and so i've i still don't know where i stand but like i used to have this hard and fast rule if i ever die do not cremate me i want to be buried in the ground like a normal person but then i started realizing you know quote like a normal person isn't is more like just like in america now this weird thing like you're talking about embalming and stuff so strange but i've like had to get used to it because i'm not my body i definitely don't feel like i'm my body and that's become more and more a part of my life since my disability too mm-hmm. which brings us to the next plot point because i was going to talk about this which is right. that obviously um graves takes over data's body and he's walking around and he is because he had a terminal illness and now he has extended his life and not telling anybody and um you know, being kind of a jerk still. He's obviously in love with Brianon, um, mm-hmm. but he doesn't know how to be kind to anybody because they make it clear that while he's in data, he's still a sexist. He's still like yeah. making googly eyes at women and stuff as they walk by. He tries to connect to her like he, you know, he tells her that he's he's graves and he says that, you know, now that he's figured out how to do this, he can build her an android body and put her into it and they can live together forever. And she's just like, this is wrong. I don't want to do that. This is <laughs> this right. isn't natural and um like you know i can understand somebody saying i don't want to live forever i kind of don't want to live forever that actually kind of sounds terrifying in mm-hmm. some way um 
and, and Star Trek kind of falls in on this, that life being finite gives it a little more meaning. Actually, well, uh, yes, the, the Good Place talk, touched on that. I was just going to say, let's, uh, spoiler alert, we're going to talk about the Good Place ending, because that was what yeah. I was just going to bring up, too. Because there's, in in the finale of The Good Place, and seriously, if you haven't watched it, you should, like, skip forward a few seconds, because I don't want to ruin it for people. But in the finale of The Good Place, there's, like, several different ways that people say goodbye. Like, some people are ready to go sooner than other people. Chidi was ready to go sooner than Eleanor, right? But mm-hmm. Tahani is never ready to go. Like, Tahani stays behind and continues to rework the uh, Good Place system. And I am definitely Tahani. She had spent most of her life just being a socialite and not really yeah. accomplishing much other than uh, befriending rich people so that she could name drop them later. Uh, <laughs> in the afterlife, she learns woodworking from Nick Offerman. And uh, yeah. she, she, she learns all this stuff and she discovers how to help other people in in new ways and even after doing that for however many like eons it feels like she still wants to continue to do it and i think that would be me i don't know i think i don't want to be immortal on this planet in this body but Mm -hmm. i do want to keep going on but like this brings up the whole like we don't know what happens in the afterlife and i mean if we want to get real real here i have a fear of the afterlife and not knowing what happens afterwards because i like i said I was raised in a very religious household and from the age that I could remember I very much thought I knew what was going to happen after death Um, and I very much like my mom tells stories about how when I was eight years old I would tell her we should just step out in front of a bus Mm. because we were just going to go to heaven anyway like I was that secure I had thoughts about that too yeah I think when you're raised in an environment where this world is nothing and you're just waiting to go to heaven and all this kind of stuff it makes this world seem like well why are we even here right yeah anyway all of this to say that like so what is beyond and in his own way graves kind of got to see what is beyond right i mean he got to be a part of his own funeral he got to kind of like walk around in a younger man's body like it's the dream that everybody has but as a person as and i've mentioned before on this podcast that like if i had a robot body that i could pick i would pick a westworld body to get out of my body that has all this Uh pain and illness and everything and so i was really conflicted because because as much as I hated not Sonny, what was his name? Graves. Graves. <laughs> um, as much as I hated Graves, I had so much sympathy, empathy, whatever, which one that is, um, for his situation as somebody else who struggles with a chronic illness. You know, mm-hmm. I was like, there has to be a solution here where he doesn't just have to die but like why can't we put him inside of a different robot like lore or another robot that exists and allow him to continue to do his work because that was the whole point of the episode was he's so important he needs to be allowed to continue to do his work right well and um that actually uh ties into uh star trek picard um i just uh released a um a youtube video um where I just recapped the uh, the events of the first season because yeah you did season season two is about to come out as which is on your this. YouTube channel what's what's the title of your YouTube channel uh, it's a it's just called Gayfesh and uh, the the uh, episode is called Why Star Trek Picard season one needs work and um but in that season I mean you saw it you don't really remember it but I, I was only th- half paying attention to it and I didn't know the characters because yeah. but um one of the big storylines is that uh, uh, Picard has a, uh, a terminal brain abnormality and uh, dies at the end of the season, but they're able to transfer his consciousness to um, an Android body. Now it's an Android body that does not already have a consciousness on it. So right. there's no ethical issues there. Um, and they don't make it an immortal Android body. They said, no, you'll just, you, you'll just live out like the rest of your natural life as if you didn't have that brain abnormality. Um, and it's not, you know, he, he doesn't have any of the, the data strength or anything like that. He's just himself again. He's just him in an, in a body like his own body. Yeah. Uh, ha- having but watched Picard that himself, recently. I know, right? Because he looks at, at the at graves and says, you've cheated it. You can't do this. This isn't, this isn't okay. You cheated death. This well, isn't how you're supposed to do it. No, I think he specifically was talking about, how graves usurped data because um because he's thinking with his emotional brain and not his logical brain. well no 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 he, he because specifically because data was still in there data is a person data has his own rights data has his 
uh, has his own rights to exist and graves being imprinted on top of him. Like they do a, a psych test and uh, uh, Deanna determines, look, if we don't do something soon, this new personality is going to erase data, which is the only reason it became so like stressful because they were mm-hmm. like the longer that man stayed inside of data, the more data could be erased. But it, right. like ethically, my question that I had while I was watching it, well, for one thing, my notes say in all capitals, if I ever have the opportunity, yes, please put me in a machine. What really drives Graves to actually realize his um, error and to relinquish control of data's body is he's not in full control of data's body. Like it's strength. Mm-hmm. He accidentally, he, he, um, I don't remember his assistant's name, uh, Brandon. Uh, he accidentally breaks her hand by squeezing it too hard. Uh, he right. knocks out both uh, Jordy and Picard with just, you know, a, a simple... Uh, um, and he keeps calling them accidents. Yeah, yeah, he calls them accidents, but after he knocks Picard out in, in a way where I'm looking at that, I'm like, you could have broken his neck, dude. Uh, mm-hmm. He realizes how many more accidents are there going to be? I realized he was going to kill somebody when he used the term lady killer and Data said, oh, you condone murder. I was like, oh, he's going to kill somebody. Yeah, (laughs) that was a good setup. I didn't think put that together. But no, uh, he realizes that he can't he can't go on because he's not in control and he's got anger issues that in this body he could easily kill someone. So he just takes matters into his own hands and uh, transfers himself off of Data. He puts himself into the ship's computer, but... They mention it's his personality isn't in the ship's computer because God, that would be awful. Uh, but all of his knowledge is, so they haven't lost like his you know years of research and. Wouldn't it on. be terrible if it was like in um, Solo when uh, Leet or whatever her name was downloaded herself into the Falcon, and it turned out that that was the attitude that three uh, PO was talking about in the original <laughs> movies? Yeah. Wouldn't it be terrible if like later on they're like, oh, this ship has a sexist, stupid attitude? I guess we found Graves in here. <laughs> There's an episode of the animated series. I don't remember exactly what causes it, but like, I think it was called the practical Joker. And I think like either like some alien entity invades the ship's computer or someone reprograms the ship's computer to start like pulling pranks on people. Okay. (laughs) One of them, like people start laughing at Kirk behind his back. He's like, what's going on? And then he turns around and then he notices that the ship has written Kirk as a jerk on the back of his uniform. (laughs) Okay. I like that. (laughs) Uh, And then he sacrifices himself and he goes into the computer. I mean, overall, I, and it's interesting that you bring up that Picard thing because I had literally forgotten about that part of the end of Picard because like I said, I was only half paying attention, but it is interesting because basically Picard ends up doing the same thing except for the body that he's being put into doesn't have like 10 years of consciousness, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Because I, how old is Data? Because because that this episode threw me off when Wesley said you're about my age. He, uh, well, Data has been in Starfleet for about fifteen years. Um, at this point, I think, or just something to that effect. So you know, and, and I, I assume he he uh, entered the academy shortly after being discovered. He's like a late teens. Yeah, I mean, because Wesley said, because he said, you know, you'll understand when you're old like me, young fellow, to, <laughs> to, to Will. Or, and he's like, uh, you're my age. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. How about the, how about when, um, oh, I think it was Brian or whatever. Why can't we get her name right? It's because she had two names. It was like Keenan Brianon or something. And they they switched between the two the whole time and it kept throwing me off. She asked Worf if he was a Romulan. <laughs> She's been on this planet like basically her whole life and she does hasn't met any other aliens, but of course she picks the most insulting alien know, race know, to I assume know. Worf is. Like And does Worf have a last name? Cause, no. Because oh, well, this episode, he called him Mr. Klingon, and I laughed. I was like, what if his name really is Worf Klingon? So, uh, Klingons will tend to do patrilineal names. Like, Worf's full name would be Worf Son of Moog. Um, okay. Which gets uh, established more later in the show. Actually, I think we might be coming up on that soon here. <laughs> no, his name is just Worf. Just Worf, okay. Uh, he called, he called Lore, uh, or not Lore, I had Lore on my mind. He called Data ugly. <laughs> And I thought that was really funny, too, because he's like, ah, yes, you have no aesthetic value. <laughs> and now that I know that that's what 
is soon or looks soon. like soon. Soon. Um, looks S O O N G. Soon with a G yes. at the end. Okay. With a G at the end. Now, now that I know what he, that he's supposed to look like him, he's insulting his fellow cybernetics person or whatever. <laughs> I, I thought that was so funny. Yeah. And now it's funnier now that I know that. I, I really thought that when he was describing what it was like to just go on and on, just existing, never really feeling. I was like, he's just describing the human condition, though. Like, a lot of people just exist. Like, we get into these... We have to, like, go to work to put a roof over our head, put food in our bellies. Sometimes it is just existing. And I thought, you know, it's just, you're kind of just describing what it's like to be a human though. When he was talking about like pain being a catalyst for learning things or something, I'm trying to remember the context of this, but I was like, no, pain isn't what teaches us what makes us human. Pain is just a side effect of being human, you know? Mm -hmm. I'm not one of those people that really believes that trauma and pain teach us anything. I think they teach us how to react to things, and those teachings aren't always good. That's why PTSD exists. And, I mean, it teaches us that people hurt us and people, you know, abandon us and that kind of stuff when you have trauma, especially as a young child. So there was this big long kind of philosophical thought about pain teaching us and i just i don't believe in that i don't think pain teaches us good stuff i think it teaches us bad things i don't think we'd necessarily be worse off as a society if we were able to do away with physical and emotional pain there is value in the psychological aversion to pain like uh, particularly for like young humans learning okay the stove is hot don't touch it because that hurts right but it does kind of have a um a knock-on effect um later mm-hmm. in life where it's just like okay yes i get it i'm in pain but there's nothing i can do about it can you shut that off please right <laughs> like in, and that doesn't even have to be like a cut on your arm it can be physical or, i mean emotional pain as well yeah. like it's like because you, your brain you know our brains are just electrified meat and they're doing their best you know oh i'm sorry before i do i almost forgot something we saw tasha (laughs) oh yeah on the uh, actually that probably was uh uh, because it was the psychological test where they had uh graves as data sit down and stare at a series of images um Mm -hmm. and one of them was tasha and i I, my thought when i saw tasha there was well that's going to be a big giveaway because he's not going to have an emotional reaction to Tasha, to he's not going to know who she who she is. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, my other Tasha joke of the episode was that when he goes in to talk to Brienne and, and like grabs her hand and stuff, I was like, oh, she's going to find out he's fully functional. <laughs> <laughs> and then we saw Tasha a little bit later and I was like, and I thought that was, I, I thought either that was really clever writing or just a happy coincidence to have the first time that Data, even if it's not Data, but the actor is showing like yeah. interest in another woman, they had two different, they had that reference to Tasha being there because because, mm-hmm. like you said before, it was pivotal to him. It's probably the first time he's been with a human woman, right? Yeah. There's also one thing I noticed. Um, basically, the way they tell you that, yes, uh, he has, in fact, transferred into Data is when he walks into the turbo lift uh, whistling, if I only had a, a heart. Right. That was kind of a, a, a double hint, too, for people who remember in Encounter at Farpoint, the first time we meet Data, he is, well, not the first time we meet Data, the first time Riker meets Data He's on the holodeck trying to whistle. Uh, uh, Pop goes oh, the weasel. But he can't that's whistle. right. He's bad at so it. So that was a tell. But yeah. Graves can whistle because he's been doing it all his life, but Data can't. So it was it's it was like when uh, Lore was trying to, uh, you know, impersonate Data, but Lore uses contractions and Data doesn't. Right. Okay. Yeah. No, tells. that's clever. Yeah. Um, I do think I do like the eulogy. I mean, if you're going to write your own eulogy, at least it was, you know, it was it was pleasant. And I love the way that Brent Spiner um, did it. Like, I just thought he was he was so into it. So, you know, if you could arrange for him to come read that at my funeral, I'd be OK with that. He could just come recite that bit of the, sh- the episode at my funeral. So, so what you're saying is you you uh, plan on going before Brent? I think he's yeah, much I guess older so. than you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm always planning my funeral. I have been my whole life. <laughs> my friend Amber has a whole list of things she's supposed to do at my funeral. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, I think that's pretty much it, though. I th- oh, oh no, no, I for we I forgot to bring up the uh, did I do anything that was unbecoming of a Starfleet officer? And that was like yes. I loved that line so much. And this- Riker, the stinker that he is, he's like, oh, does wrestling with a Klingon targ ring a bell? <laughs> I know, I know. I thought that was great. He's such a he's such a dad. <laughs> like, I thought that was so funny. Then Data's like, did I win? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he just took it at face value and in this episode especially following up you know armis killing comedy last episode last episode that we did i'm really glad that um they had data have the line of i've had a hard time understanding what's funny no crap buddy (laughs) we've been on that journey with you But yeah, I love that line. And I, I do, I you know, to be honest, I like when it comes back to like a ha-ha joke on the bridge moment now. The first couple of times it happened, I was kind of like thrown off by it because it's not something that typically happens in a drama where at the end we have like a, a, a jolly old laugh about something. It's a very but, TOS way to end an episode. Um, they always yeah, ended their, their, their shows true. on a joke. Yeah, but like, I don't know. I kind of like it. Maybe it's because of the TOS, though, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I mean, I don't know. I liked both of these episodes. I really liked the the first one. And I thought this one was really interesting, even if I hated the dude, you know, I really liked the philosophical discussions behind it. The like and then, you know, I liked the whole future of what are we going to do when we can download consciousness into bodies and stuff like that? You know, I don't know. All of I love when it brings up philosophical things that I have to think about, you know? So thanks for joining us today. I'm Ari. And I'm Gayfesh. And until next time, live long and prosper. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe and consider writing a review in your podcast service. We're on Twitter at Rest Both Worlds. Join our Patreon at patreon.com slash worlds for bonus content and hear your name at the end of each episode.